Today, we turn our attention to the dispute over the Rambam's works that took place in Europe around the year 1232. The controversy revolved around Rambam's Meirin Avuchim and Sefer Hamada, and it culminated in these works being banned and eventually burned. What was it about these works that were so controversial? What social factors led to the appalling book burnings? Who was responsible for this? Indeed, some of the greatest rabbis of the day were involved in this story. So by delving into their writings, we hope to disentangle fact from fiction and learn about the central themes that emerge from this dispute. Today's story begins in the summer of 1332. We're going to Saragossa in Spain. And we have over there the leaders of the Jewish community, 11 members, Manhigim, not Rabbanim, but the leaders of the community, who send out a letter to all of the other cities that have Jews in, uh, residing there in their area, which is the Kingdom of Aragon. So let's read from this letter. It says as follows, in part, now we have three tools of destruction that have arisen. In other words, there are three bad people. And they are having a negative influence on the Jewish community. And they're talking slander, negativity against the Rambam. In fact, they excommunicated anyone who studies or reads the Sefer Amada, the first work of Mishnah Torah, whose completion we're celebrating tonight, and the Moira Nevuchim, Rambam's God for the Perplexed. In addition, they also excommunicated anyone who learns any secular subjects. This time, secular subjects meant the medieval uh, philosophy, which was basically Greek uh, philosophy. And the claim being made here is that certain unnamed individuals have, at, at least up to now they haven't been named, have, have issued a ban both against the Rambam's works and against studying secular philosophy. So we tremble when we hear this. And so therefore we're writing this to all of the communities in the kingdom of Aragon. To go out and to fight a war and to issue a counter ban. That is to put these individuals into a cheirem. Just as we did, we put them in cheirem and nidui. And here he says the names. Number one is Shloima Avram and Bahar. Shloima, the son of Avram, who dwells on a mountain. What does it mean he dwells on a mountain? So in the south of France, in the area of Provence, there is a city called Montpellier, and this, obviously, the beginning of that word is M-O-N-T, is mount, which means a mountain. And so the Jews would often refer to people who came from there as HaShoych and Bahar. So he's from Montpellier in southern France. This is Shlomo ben Reb Avram, as is going to become clear from 
the sources that we're going to look at, as well as from other sources. This was a, a well-known rabbinic figure who was highly respected by his peers and is quoted uh, in Shuvah Svarim and Halacha Svarim, etc. He's number one. And Shnei Talmidov, two of his students, one name is Reb David, who we're not going to focus much on tonight. The second one is, he's named here as Yoyna. This Yoyna here, we also know from the different sources from this period, that this Yoyna is referring to none other than the Rabbeinu Yoyna. You learned Meseches Baba Basra, perhaps you remember that you were learning the, the Aliyahs to Rabbeinu Yoyna. That is because it's, instead of it being called Chidushim, they're called Aliyas, because he writes at the end of each piece, Allah biyadeinu. In other words, what is our conclusion? And so I got the name Aliyas to Rabbeinu Yoyna. And he also wrote a Musr Sefer called Shari Tshuva. And uh, he was uh, one of the very prominent Rishonim in Svard. At this point in the 1330s, he didn't reach his full prominence yet. That's going to happen a little later. But he too, together with his colleague and together with his uh, teacher, Reb Shloyma, are being... Uh, excommunicated by these 11 leaders of the Jewish community of Saragossa, and it signs off, Nichtav Biyarach of Shnas Dalid Tov Tov Kuf Dalid Tov Tov Kuf Tzadik Beis. It is signed in the summer, the month of Av, of the year 1332. This is a really important document because many of the documents we're going to be looking at do not have dates on them. Because they don't have dates on them, it gets very confusing to try to figure out when and when, when things happened. This is one of the only documents in this whole Parsha. A lot have survived. But this is one of the only ones that has its date, and that's why it's very useful in order to understand what happened. Okay, the first signatory of this document, his name was Bechaya ben Moshe. Bechaya ben Moshe is a known figure of this time. He was a, what we call a court Jew. Uh, very close with James I, who was, a, uh, who was the king of Aragon at the time, and a very influential person in the community, and obviously he uh, felt very passionate about learning secular subjects. He also felt very passionate about defending the Rambam's honor, uh, and so he is the instigator behind this letter, which is why he is the one to sign first. Okay, so this is scene one that we get, and now let's move to scene two. We're going to read the Ramban, at this time was about 38 years old, and the Ramban was living in Catalonia, in a region not too far from where we're talking about. Today it's all in Spain. And the Ramban writes a letter to the Rabbanim in France, and we'll gain some important information from the few lines that we'll read in this letter. The Ramban writes, Call Eretz Sarfas, Rabbanim Vesarim, Kulam Iskimu, Lenadois Ulahacharim, Kol Ish, Asher Yodoi Heirim, Lahogois, Besefer Moire Nevuchim, Besefer Mado. The Ramban writes over here that all of the rabbis of Sarfars, all of the rabbis in France, have all agreed to excommunicate anyone who studies the Murren of Uchem and Sefer Amada. This is giving us information that we didn't get from the first letter in Saragossa. The first letter in Saragossa just said there's these three bad actors, Reb Shleim and his two students, and they banned anyone who reads Sefer Amada and Murren of Uchem. Here we're seeing from the letter uh, of the Ramban that in fact the ban was, the, the excommunication was issued by the Chachmei Tzarfas. At this time, we're still in the era, the era of the Baleatosis. The era of the Baleatosis, the 1100s and the 1200s. So we're in the, we're in the second century of the Baleatosis. There's Baleatosis in Germany. There's a Baleatosis in France. Here we're talking specifically about the rabbis in France. And what we're learning from the Ramban is that all of the French rabbis were the ones who, or in fact, issued this uh, excommunication. And they said that these books, meaning the Murren of Uchim and Sefer Amad, 
shouldn't be studied, but have to be buried away. And he says, the Ramban is writing to the rabbis in France, uh, and he writes, this is a summary of everything that you wrote. Unfortunately, the letter that the Rabbanim in France wrote does not survive. So we only have it in a second account, where here, the Ramban says, this is a summary of what, uh, of what you wrote. And then he tells us another thing that they wrote. You said about the holy individual, meaning the Rambam, He's, and no one, not by us here in Spain where we are, Ramban is saying, and not by you in Sarfas, do we have anyone who is as holy as this person. Rambam is an unparalleled figure, and nonetheless, you uh, irreverently spoke about him. It seems that in the letter that came from France, there was this phrase that said, not such a big deal to say that you had a great rabbi who then went wayward. Why? Because we have a Gemara and Brachis. Meaning, this is a reference to the Gemara and Brachis that says it was Yechran Kayan Gadol, who was obviously a tzaddik, he was a Kayan Gadol, and nonetheless he became a tzaduki after many, many years serving in the base Hamikdash. And so, if it could happen to him, it could happen to anyone. And it seems that the, the, that the Rabbanim in France use this type of language in their document, which again no longer exists today. So that's piece number two of this story. However, as we're going to see, things got a lot worse. And this is going to come to us from a letter that was written by the Radak. The Radak is a very familiar name, Rabdavid Kimchi, because he's living at this time, he lives in Provence, meaning not in Montpellier, but in the general area, not too far from there. And he is a very strong supporter of the Rambam. And during this period, from the letter that we're going to be reading right now, it's very clear that he left his hometown, traveled into Spain, and it seems when he was there, he was getting involved and in trying to do something very similar to the first text that we saw. The first text that we saw was the leadership of the Saragossa community trying to get a counterban against Reb Shloim and his two students. It seems that Reb Dak was trying to do the same thing in a different area of Spain, in Castile, where he was traveling. And so to that effect, the Radak, Reb David Chimchi, has a letter that is written to a man named Reb Yehuda ben Yosef al-Fakhir. And in this letter he writes as follows. He's writing about Reb Shloima. He really went bad. He became corrupt. And he levels an accusation which is probably the worst accusation you could come to a Jew. Definitely at that time. In the 13th century. And what's the worst thing you could tell a Yid? Is that you're a Maushan and a Moiser. Which means you went to the secular authorities and you reported on something that was going on in the Jewish community in a way that jeopardized the integrity of the Jewish community. What happened? So the Radak continues to say, when he saw that the French rabbis abandoned him, this likely means that although we saw that the French rabbis issued a cherem, this seems to mean that at a certain point they revoked their cherem, and indeed other letters from this period do show that at a certain point they revoked their cherem. So Radak is saying that when the French rabbis revoked their cherem, so what he's gonna do now? If you don't have the French rabbis helping you out, so what did he do? He resorted to the psilim tavaydazara. What does that mean? He went to the barefoot Franciscans. Franciscans. These are a certain, a certain form of a Christian order, and they were mahader and not wearing uh, shoes as a way of uh, being more spiritual. 
and uh, being, uh, they were supposed to be mendicants, which means they're supposed to be uh, impoverished, they're not supposed to live a life of luxury. So he went to them, and these were the people who very often were behind religious revival, they were behind the inquisitions, they were behind these types of moistus that would, uh, that would deal with these types of things. And he said, Look, my fellow Jews are all heretics, or most of them are heretics, because they follow the words of Rabbeinu Moshe and Mitzrayim, who wrote Sifrei Minus. Wow. So therefore, he continues, again, he's putting words into Rav Shlomo's mouth, saying, You get rid of your heretics, right? The Christians would, if they had someone who broke off or started another sect or had a belief that wasn't proper, so in the Middle Ages, that person would be dealt with quite harshly. So, why don't you do the same thing for us? And I'm telling you that you should command that we should burn these books. Which books? Say for Madan, say for Moira. But he wasn't happy with this. He then went to, Franci to the Franciscans, to, excuse me, to the Dominicans. This is another uh, order. And here he gives a Spanish word which means preachers, because these were known as uh, the preachers. And then he went to higher uh, priests and bishops. So this went really all the way up the Catholic hierarchy, all the way up to the top. All the Jews in Montpellier and other areas in Provence are now in danger because of this Malshinus that Reb Shloyme has done. And so therefore, Radak concludes his letter to this Reb Yehuda ben Yosef, who is a communal leader in Castile, saying, You should have compassion. And take pity on, on God and, so to speak, and on the Jewish people. You should issue a counterban against these people. And he signs his name, David ben Reb Yosef Kimchi. You'll notice that in this letter, there is no mention about an actual fire, an actual burning of the books. There is a mention here that Reb Shloyma went to them and said, this is something that you should do. But for whatever reason, in this particular letter, uh, there is no reference of that. However, there are other documents from this period in time that do indeed give us that missing link and t talk to us about a fire, about a burning of the books. And this comes to us from a letter written by none other than uh, the Rambam's son. The Rambam had one son that we know of. His name was Rebbe Avram, and he uh, was Mamala Makam. He took the position of his father after his father passed away in Egypt. And he gets the news of this sometime in the 1230s. And he writes a letter responding, defending his father and attacking those who are against his work. The beginning of his letter uh, opens with the following uh, poem. Reads as follows: Ma baru, how foolish ha'emrim those who say ki baru divrei chamudos that they that they burnt. There's a play on the word baru baru. First one means foolish. Second one means burnt. That they burnt divrei chamudos the holy words, the pure words. Yikaru mizav more pure than gold. Eish oichlahema. It's Torah, and Torah is fire. The Eich Eish Teichlem. So how could fire consume? Fire can't consume fire. So fire can't consume the works of my father. Fools, understand this. And those of you who help nonsense or idolatry or whatever. What you think happened didn't happen. These, the works of the Rambam went up like Elio, alive, to Hashem, in fire. And like the angel who goes up uh, in the story of Shimshin, uh, is parents uh, who goes up again alive uh, in a flame. That's the type of fire that happened over here. Uh, very poetic, but in a sense, if you want to go very kipshutoi, 
you think you're going to burn the, burn the works of the Rambam, you think that's going to be effective, it's going to be completely ineffective, they're going to be learning the works of the Rambam seven centuries and eight centuries later, which is exactly what's happening, and so these works are indestructible. Okay, by the way, here's a good point to pause and to say the following. All of these documents existed where Jews preserved them, and they wrote them down, and they used to have like these booklets, that was collections of these letters, and there were different ones, and slowly these things were printed. The first major printing of these letters was in the 1500s, and then multiple times they were printed. So there's two major works today that have collections of these letters. One is a sefer that's called the Geras Knois, uh, that has one collection, and the other uh, is, is, um, is called, uh, what's the other one? The other one is called uh, Ginze Nistaris. Uh, both of those uh, particular editions were printed in the 19th uh, century. That's where we have most of these documents. That's where we have most of these documents from. The bottom line is, we have here a story. We have here the story and the voices of the three individuals that we so far, uh, the four individuals that we so far saw. We saw the community in Saragossa saying, they put a cherem on us and we need to do a counter cherem. And they spoke against the Rambam, how terrible that is. We see the Ramban clarifying for us, actually the Cherem was issued by the rabbis in France, so the rabbis of France are now part of this story. We see the Radak telling us that when the rabbis in France no longer supported Reb Shloyma, he went to the Christian authorities and asked that they be burnt, and then we find from Reb Avram, the Rambam, that the fire actually occurred. How many volumes, how many books, where did this fire take place? No information uh, about that exists, uh, but this is the story that we have as of now. Obviously a shocking story to hear that number one, the Rambam's works were burnt. That's number one shocking. And number two, the accusation that we hear from the Radak that Jews instigated this and were behind this all the, uh, obviously makes it doubly shocking. So in order to understand what's happening here, we need a little more context. We're going to see, we're going to look now to two letters that were written during this period in time where people were saying against the Radak. And they were writing against the proponents of the Rabbah and actually justifying what Reb Shlomo, coming to Reb Shlomo's defense. So the first we're going to look at is a letter written by Reb Yehuda ben Yosef Al-Fakhar. He's the one, we mentioned his name a moment ago, Radak was writing to him before, trying to convince him that he should join uh, the side against Reb Shlaima, and here we see that he's going to respond back. And what it is, is a pretty harsh attack on the Rambam's Baron of Uchen. Interesting, we're going to see, he doesn't talk at all about the Sefer Hayat, he doesn't talk at all about Sefer Amada. And in all the sources we've been seeing so far, we saw that Sefer Amada is part of the ban, and is part of the, uh, the agitation is against Sefer Amada as well. He doesn't really talk about Sefer Amada, he talks about Baron of Uchen. So let's have a look at what he writes to the Radak. So he writes as follows, By the way, many of these letters are very hard to read because they're very poetic and they're, they're imbued with a lot of biblical phraseology, which makes it very difficult. But we'll try our best and we'll summarize some outside. Don't you know the Radak, he writes. That some of the words of the Mernavuchim, not all, but some of the words of Mernavuchim, Nevuchim and Baaretz are confusing. They cause people to be lost. And here he starts giving examples. The first example he gives is he gives the miracle that's described in Sefer Yeshua that's called Shemesh Begivon Doim. Pekitzer, the Mai says that there was a war at this time and uh, Yeshua needs daylight in order to continue his battle to defeat the enemy, the Emoirim, who he is fighting. But the day is getting, uh, is, is, is concluding and that's not going to be good. The enemy knows the terrain, they're going to be able to run away if it gets dark. 
and so we have where Yeshua turns to the sun and says, stand still, and that's what happens, and this is the miracle that's described in Sefer Yeshua. And, huh? Oh, good order. Seder Olam says, the Seder Olam says that it's Gimel Tams. That this event happened in Gimel Tams. If we have time, we're going to come back to that and talk about that uh, at the conclusion. So, what happened? What's he talking about here? The Rambam, Amar Nebuchim, has a passage about this. And as is known, the Rambam, Amar Nebuchim, often tries to minimize Nisim and try to uh, minimize their role in Jewish life. It's a very vague passage. And so the commentators of the Amar Nebuchim are themselves not sure what the Rambam really means there. But suffice it to say that definitely some of them say that the Rambam is explaining that the Nas wasn't literal, but in some metaphoric way. So, for example, a metaphoric meaning would be that they, the Jews won their battle so quickly that it looked like, oh, no, the, the sun has been standing still because, uh, because they achieved the victory so quickly. Um, again, not clear at all that that's what the Rambam is saying. The commentators hundreds of years ago already started debating it, but he here mentions this as problem number one. Problem number two is the story of the Asain. And that is the story of Bilam, where the Rambam has lays out a principle. He says that any time you see a Malach, it's always in a Chizayin, it's always a vision, it's always a dream. You never see a Malach uh, sitting face to face with you in a physical form. That's not something. A Malach is a spiritual being. You can't physically see a spiritual being, so therefore it's always in a Chizayin. This is Rambam Shittar Maran Vuchim. And he uh, uses that as the second. And so therefore, when the donkey says, I saw an angel, and Bilam is communicating with the angel. All of this is actually not something that happens. It's something that happens in his dream. The third uh, issue that he brings up, no. The third issue that he brings up is about the Livyasan. The Livyasan is what one of the Sodas, the Soda that's going to be lost in Lava. The Rambam, and this we just learned actually in Mishnah Torah, if you were paying close attention in Parakhes, I think, of Hilchus Tshuva, he says over there that the Soda is a Mashal. The whole soul, the lost love is a mashal. is a soul without a body. And it's a very good thing. And so one of the words that Chazal used is soda. Now, if that's soda, so therefore the Levyasan and the Sharabar are also part of the metaphor. The Raivit Al-Asar got, got upset by that. And you may have noticed, he said, no, this is, not, uh, this is not correct. This is not correct according to Chazal. So that's the third item that he brings. Uh, and then he, and he concludes this part by saying, any person who's a pious Jew, is very confused and shocked when they see something like this. Then he moves into the next area. There's a very famous passage of Mer Nevochim in Chelek Beis about Aristotle's static universe theory. That is as follows. Aristotle believed that the world is infinite, which means it was never created. It always existed. And by the way, science for many centuries said that. The Big Bang, by the way, is a change. The Big Bang tells you is the opposite of static universe th uh, theory. The Big Bang th says that there was a beginning. Okay. But Aristotle had his way for many, many centuries. And so therefore, if you were a good, if you were in, if you were woke in the 1300s, what are the, uh, the 1200s, so that means you had to believe in the static universe. And so obviously that goes against Bereshit's Baralikim as So the Rambam has a whole cat on this in Anerech Perech Chavav, I think, in Mer Nevochim Chelek Beit. And he writes over there, Aristotle doesn't have good rias, and it's not a persuasive case, so you need to believe it, and so therefore we're going to reject Aristotle on this, even though usually Rambam is very accommodating to Aristotle. Uh, however, he does write over there that if we could demonstrate and we could prove 100% that the world was taka static universe, 
So then I'd be open to reinterpreting Bereshit's bara as a metaphor. Oh my God, this was very, very controversial to open up that type of can of worms and to say that type of thing. So this is what Rabbi Yehudah ben Yosef is quoting that part. And he's saying, this is how could anyone say something like this? And what the Rambam does is it says, once it comes to, we say, God says, Nasa Adam B'Tzalmenu, our image. Is that literal? God has an image? No, it doesn't have an image. God doesn't have an image. So if you could work it out that way, that Salmenu for God is not uh, literal, so you could work it out for Bereshit's Baralikim. So Reb Yehuda ben Yosef wants to rip his hair out of his head. How can you compare the two? How can you compare? Obviously, the idea of saying that the Abishter is not a physical body, yes, so therefore Salmenu is a metaphor, fine, but to take the whole story of Bereshit and Shabbos and everything in the six days, and you're going to say all of that, is that he says, this is something that should be rejected from the base medrash. Uh, he should have never, Rambam should have never said uh, something like this. In fact, the word that often is used for proof in medieval philosophy is amoifus. Amoifus means a clear, demonstrable proof. It's not to be confused with an experiment that's done today. That's not how it worked then. There, it just had to be logic. That logically you were able to make your argument and it was sound, so that was called amoifus. That's the word they always used. So the Yehuda does something geschmack. He says, and the Torah talks about what happens if a Navi comes and gives a moifis, that's a different meaning of the word, a miracle, and says, do avaydazara, what do you do? You don't listen to the Navi. I don't care about his ois. Loisishmal divrei anavi, you don't listen to his moifis. So he says the same thing over here. Even if Aristotle will come with his moifis, moifis ahin, moifis ahir, bereshis barley kim, is bereshis barley kim. Then he moves to another controversial area of the Murnavuchim, and that has to do with the, the, the long life that's ascribed to people in Sefer Bereshis. The Rambam minimizes that. How does he do that? In Murnavuchim, he writes that it's only the people who are named to have lived 900 years, 800 years, and 700 years, only those people, Shmam Vashem Imam, Yanko Ben Tadris, only that person lived longer. But his cousin and his brother and all the people living around them, they live regular lives like us. The Pashtus, why is the Rambam doing that? Because the Rambam wants, it's a shocking miracle. People can live so long, according to the Moifis, the logic of medieval philosophy, it was impossible for a person to live 900 years. And so therefore, you minimize the miracle by saying it only applied to certain individuals. So he says, this is what a ridiculous thing. At the end of the day, the Rambam, you still need to accept that it happened to some people. So he says as follows, imagine one person comes and says, I saw a camel flying in the air. You don't believe it. What if someone says, I saw two camels uh, flying in the air? So you wouldn't believe it either. Okay, so now would it make sense to say, two camels flying in the air, that I can't, but one I'm going to accept. It's ridiculous. The second you're ready to accept that one camel is flying in the air, so then it's not a bigger leap to accept that two are flying in the air. So either none of them live long, fine. But the second you accept that some people live long, so then you already have one camel flying in the air, so just believe that the second camel is flying in the air. And the Ramban, by the way, in his Pirush Torah, also criticizes this passage of Mer Nebuchim uh, as well. He then moves on and says as follows, Bechol Zeus, look at the left-hand side, Bechol Zeus. Nonetheless, despite all these critiques I leveled at the Marn of Uchim, Mitzvah Leinu Lachos HaKvayd Shal Rabbeinu Moishazah. We have to be concerned about his honor. Ki haya b'doyrek ish He in his generation was a, a very pure person, using language uh, that we say about Daniel. Hu kasavis Mishnah Torah, he wrote the Mishnah Torah, and he's celebrating the Mishnah Torah. And he uses the Gemara and Chagiga over here, that you're supposed to learn Torah from Amalach Hashem Tzvakis. We spoke about this in a previous class. So he says, that's the Rambam. The Rambam is Malach Hashem Tzvakis. you got to learn from him. We never had anyone as good as him. And therefore, we need to be done him. In other words, I reject this work, or parts of this work I reject, but that doesn't get in the way of the grandeur of this man. 
and the greatness of this man, and the holiness of this man. And we have to give him the benefit of the doubt, and uh, at the same time, you're allowed to have hasagos and disagreements on these things uh, that he did. And then he goes and says, but you know, so, the people who were very loyal to the Rambam during this period, for them, the idea that the Rambam made an error is something off the table. So he says, it's not a big deal to think that the Rambam made an error, and is, don't worry, it's not up to say that the Rambam Why? And he brings two biblical rights. One is from the story of Aaron and Miriam, where Aaron and Miriam turned to Moshe and say, Asher Nayanov, Asher Chatanu, we were foolish and we sinned when we spoke about your wife. That's the story in Parshish Ba'aloizcha. And then the story in David, when David HaMelech, David HaMelech counted the Jewish people, which was the wrong thing to do. And then after that story, David HaMelech said, Hine Anoichi Chatasi, I sinned. And so therefore, if David HaMelech could, and Aaron could, and Miriam could, so it's the same thing we could say about Moshe Rabbeinu. It doesn't detract ki from how we look at Aaron, how we look at David, and in this case, how we look at the uh, Rambam. So this was the letter that we saw from Yehuda Alfachar. Now we're going to see another letter, also written by a Jew in Castile. Again, the anti-Reb Shloyma movement didn't really pick up so much in Castile as it did in Aragon. So here we have a Yid named Rabbi Yosef ben Tadras Alevi, and he's writing a letter to the Jews in Montpellier, where the action all happened. And he will see a little bit of a different focus in the selection that I'm using from his letter. Here he's going to talk more about the impact that he thinks the Muran of Uchim is having on society. Okay, so the Yehuda al-Fakhar's letter is problems, academic problems with the Moira. He didn't talk about the sociology at all. He did a little. But it wasn't the emphasis of his letter, and so therefore I didn't include it. Here's the other way around. Rabbi Yosef ben Tadris is going to talk a lot about the sociology of how all of this is impacting hearts and minds on the ground. So what does he say? He says as follows. There are people going around who say, We're philosophers, we're wise. Li is called, divrei Torah, divrei Kabbalah. All of Torah and all of tradition is a mashal v'chida. All of tradition is one big metaphor. The Torah is, the Torah is one big metaphor. And about the miracles, The Toilin Tausam and their error, they blame it on the Ba'ashli Rabbah, the great one. Who? Harav HaGadol, Rabbeinu Moshe. Zatzal. So great respect here for the Rambam. Says over here, There hasn't been anyone as great as the Rambam from the time of Chsimah Satamud, Ravina Ravashi, till today. So that's an amazing statement. But... The problem is we have people here who are taking all of the miracles in the Torah and marginalizing them, and they're taking bichlal details in the Torah and saying it's a metaphor, and that is a problem. The Rambam called his work, We should call it the opposite. Here he's making a, a, a pun. Meaning the confusion for the rebels. Moirim are rebels. So, the guide for the perplexed, turns into the confusion for the people who are, are, are rebelling. And then he goes on to say the following. I heard a rumor a number of years ago that the Rambam wanted to bury the third part of the Marnavuchim. What's in the third part? One of the big themes in the third part of Marnavuchim is the Rambam goes through the mitzvahs and offers reasons. Reasons and rationales and justifications for many of the mitzvahs. Some of them... Uh, intuitive. Many of them, when you read them, they are, are quite shocking. So for the example, this is, Ketoidus is a good example. But we spoke about this once in a previous class. Ketoidus, the Beis Amikdosh, has so many korbanis, so it smells. So you need to have a positive aroma. So you have Ketoidus there in order to expel the negative smell. That's an example. Or korbanis, even korbanis. 
about which the Torah says, Reach Nechayach LaHashem, the great Avoidah, and how Hashem so much appreciates it. There, the Moran of Uchin, the Rambam explains that Jews couldn't envision serving God without animal sacrifice. And because this was the way of the idolaters. And had God said no animal sacrifice, they would have done it for Avedah Zarah. So therefore Hashem said, you know what? I'll channel it toward me. I'll channel it toward Avedah Hashem. And many other mitzvahs that, uh, that, uh, that as well, he gives reasons that are, are, are technical. Another interesting thing is many of them revolve around Avedah Zarah. So for example, you're not allowed to have a tattoo. And this you're able to see even when you're learning Sefer Ahmadi. You're not allowed to have a tattoo. That's linked with Avedah Zarah. Many of the other, the beard and the payas mitzvahs are all part of his Hilchas Avedis Kachav Mazalis, and that's following the logic in the Marna Vukhan that all these things are to weigh distance us from uh, Avedis Zara. Uh, anyway, so he's saying over here that the Rambam himself regretted having produced this, and so he therefore said that he wants to bury it, but too late, the work is out, and once it's on the internet, you can never take it down. And this is um, what he's saying over here. Now, it's a very difficult thing to understand, uh, or to even accept this, because uh, Rabbi Ramban Arambam, uh, endorses the third chapter, the third uh, chilek of his Rambam's work, and uh, because he spoke about this, that people had problems with it, and he said, if you don't like the reasons there, you don't have to accept it, but at no point did he say, oh yeah, by the way, my father also was unhappy with his work. So, it's, uh, this is the only source we have for this, it's a certain tradition that he heard, but what's important is, it tells us what was on his mind, that in it, he thought this was a problem. The Taimei HaMitzvah in the third section of Merna Vuchim was a problem, why? And look what he says over here, he says, how do you think you understand the reasons for the mitzvahs? And your reasons, this is a pun on a halachic term, you're basically using a tam, not taste, but a reason, to ruin the mitzvah. And then he goes on, he quotes the Gemara, that Shloyma, the, the, the Gemara says, we don't reveal the reasons for mitzvahs, and it's a whole sugya, whether there are reasons for mitzvahs, we can't get into that now. But there is a Gemara that says, we can't, why didn't Hashem reveal the reasons for mitzvahs? Because then we're going to rationalize them away. Shlomo Melech did that. He said, ah, you can't, um, ma uh, you can't uh, marry a non-Jewish wife because then she's going to lead you to idolatry. Okay, I won't do idolatry. And then, uh, etc. Okay. And then he says, And the result, the sociological result, is we have the eagle that we have today. That we have the Erev Rav, and we have the Asafsuf, we have the rabble, the, the masses. Everyone thinks he's a lover of wisdom, a philosopher, and and they're messing up the Iker, the Yiddishkeit. They're treating sanctified rituals as mundane things, and they think they're pturim in tefillah Interesting, he points to two things. Yidin saying, I'm not putting on tefillin, Yidin saying, I'm not going to daven. And by the way, according to Aristotle, prayer doesn't work, right? Because God his conception of God doesn't allow for prayer, so we could understand how that type of thing works. And it's just bringing people down, it's not helping people. Okay? So, in the first letter that we saw from Yehuda, Al-Fakhar, the stress there was all the problems with the Moira, Hanavuchin. Here we see Rabbi Yosef and Tadras Halevi living in the same region, pointing and, and saying that we have a problem here. We have Jews who aren't taking their Yiddishkeit seriously. They're being lax in their observance of mitzvahs. They aren't taking the Torah seriously. They're issuing new interpretations of the Torah. And guess what? Everything is being blamed on who? On the Rambam. The Rambam, the Rambam. Why? Because you could go, the reasons, every mitzvah has a reason. If every mitzvah has a reason, that doesn't apply to me. 
right? Or if the Rambam says a metaphor about one thing, then maybe I could go ahead and expand it and say that even another thing is a metaphor. Where do you draw the line? And so therefore, the issues that we dis are, are, are seeing here in the book have real life consequences in, uh, uh, in, in real life. And indeed, we have from another Eidos at this time, there's the Smag, Sefer Mitzvah's Godel. Sefer Mitzvah's Godel was written by Ramosha of Kutsi. The reason it's important to bring up his name the whole, the, earlier I mentioned the rabbis of France, the rabbis of France, and all of the documents, not one of them ever mentioned which Rabbanim we're talking about. We know, we know who the Rabbanim at the time in France are. Rabbi Chilmi Parij is one of them, and Rabbi Moshe of Kutsi is another. For whatever reason, their names don't surface in these documents. But anyway, Rabbi Moshe of Kutsi, one of the greatest uh, of, of Tsarfas at this time, he actually goes down to Spain, and he describes in Asay Simen Gimel, where he, uh, that he goes down to Spain in the year 1236, that's Mamish right after the time that we're in, a few years later. And he says he went down to give speeches and to encourage Yidin to do tshuva. And he says, many thousands accepted mitzvahs tefillin, mezuzah, and tzitzis. And then he says, v'chayim b'shar arzais ha'yisi achach, I went to other lands, not clear which areas he went to. And they asked me, write a sefer, which is why he wrote Sefer Mitzvah's Gadol, which is 613 mitzvahs. It seems that he didn't know that Rambam had written a Sefer HaMitzvah. He wrote a Sefer HaMitzvah. Miyusad, almost, Rubai Kekuloi, is Miyusad on the Rambam's Mishnah Torah. That's the Sefer that he ended up writing. And for a very long time, this was a very, very popular Sefer in Europe. It was learned uh, definitely by French Jews and other Jews as well. But what you see over here from this Kufa is someone coming to Spain and he finds Yidin Arm putting on tefillin. By the way, the Rebbe initiated Mifzit's tefillin. The Rebbe pointed to this man on a number of occasions as a precedent for the idea that so another yid isn't putting on tefillin, so you have an obligation, go and inspire them. Once, when the Rebbe spoke about this, he said, you know, people, one of the tiniest they have a mitzvah tefillin is, you're coming out to another Jew, you need to have a guf naki uh, in order to tefillin, and you, you, have, to, uh, you have to have nikios in your mind, physically, but also mentally you have to have nikios. And uh, these people don't have. See, so the Rebbe said, Ramosh of Kutsi in France, when he was encouraging all these thousands of Jews to put on, you think all that mamish had a gufnaki in the way uh, you're referring to? Lavdafke, they had a gufnaki. And so this was a precedent for, uh, for uh, this idea. Now we can understand why a Reb Shloyma would be agitated by the Muran Vuchim. And we can understand, and we'll hear his voice soon. We didn't hear his voice yet. So far, we only heard people talking about it. But we could understand, because it was a real problem. And his defenders here are pointing to the issues and the challenges that were going on in his day. And we can understand why the French rabbis would ban the Muran of Uchim based on the things that we're seeing. When you realize it's not a book on the shelf, but it's having real life implications. The question is, what about Sefer Amada? What about Sefer Amada? None of these, not Rabbi Yosef and not Rabbi Yehuda, they didn't write against Sefer Amada. In fact, most of the writings that we have from this period, no one really condemns Sefer Amada. And yet, it was part of the Cherem, and it was part of the fire. So what happens over here? So really, here we turn back to the Ramban. The Ramban writes to the rabbis in France, and we have his letters. And he basically is trying to make a compromise between the two sides. That's the tone of Ramban's letter. He was, again, he, was, he wasn't 40 years old. He's in his uh, upper 30s. Later, he's going to be the God of Lador. I don't know if he reached that status already yet. But he wrote these letters to the French uh, Rabbanim. And he's, uh, he, one of the things he says uh, is relevant for us is about Sefer Amada. And he says, you may have tightness on Mar Nefuchim, I understand you. But my Yoimru is Sefer Amada. How do you have any tightness against Sefer Amada? And here he starts singing the praises of Sefer Amada. So it's interesting, what, you know, we just finished Sefer Amada, what did we, what, what's your highlights? So let's see what the Ramban's highlights are. So he says, number one, he counted the mitzvahs, I say, 
and he counted the mitzvahs loisase. So the minyan of mitzvahs in the beginning is a highlight. Number two, teaching the Talmidim about having COVID and Moira and Hilchas Tamatoira. So Hilchas Tamatoira is the second highlight. Number three is Hilchas Chuva. And he goes on to say that we had a problem with Hilchas Chuva. If you wanted to learn about how to do Chuva as a Jew before the Rambam, what are you going to do? The, in the Gemara, it's scattered all over the place and it's very, you can't, it's, it's not a guide. And here, for the first time, we have someone who put together a guide on how to do tshuva. These are his highlights of Sefer Amada. Not Hilchas Yisaydat Torah, not Hilchas Deis. These are his highlights um, uh, that he's uh, providing. Incidentally, Hilchas Tshuva also happens to be some of the, mo the most controversial Pedic and Pedic Ches. Uh, some of the things we alluded to before and other uh, issues that we're going to talk to uh, talk about soon happen to also be in, 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 in uh, Hilchas Tshuva. But that's not his focus. His focus here is, look how great Sefer Amada is. And then he says, what happened? Did you forget about the Ravid? The Ravid, earlier, the Ravid got his copy of the Rambams, probably sometime in the late 1100s, 1190s or something like that. And he went through it. Itaka wrote Hasogis. Some of them are very sharp. Some of them are very, very bitter. Some of them very strong disagreements. Fine, no problem. Did he ever say you have to bury the Sefer? Did he ever say you can't read it? Did he ever make a cherem on it? No, he just did his work and that's it. And he never uh, used the words min. He never said that the Rambam is, and, uh, uh, has a tzad minus chas shalom. He never did anything like that. So who gives you a right to, uh, to, uh, to forget that precedent uh, 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 of the Ravid. The Ravid was a very well uh, respected figure by the Chachmet Sarfas, and so therefore this is an argument that he's bringing to their attention. In Ochas Tshuva, when the Rambam writes that Olam Haba is a world of souls without bodies, the Ravid gets pretty close, but it actually proves uh, Ramban's point, because the Ravid says the words of this person, Rambam, are awfully close. Kroivim, the Lamisha Oimer says that Tchias HaMesim is not literal, but is, is, a, is only uh, mean, refers to immortality of the soul. The Ravid didn't say that it is what it is. He just says, and I crave him, it's close. And he didn't cross the line and say, and therefore this is a work of Kfira or, or anything uh, like that. He just says, like Lush and Shvua. This is not the opinion of Chazal. So Ramban basically wants to bring back the good the, the, good the good 1990s, the good 1190s. Let's go back to the good 90s when we all got along, when the Rambam was writing, when Ravid was writing these acerbic attacks on the Rambam, but it was within the norm, within the context of a normal base madness, not what happened here with charamim and burnings and, and, and things of the sort. This letter to the Rambam, by the way, doesn't mention any burning, so we have to assume that this letter to the Rambam was, Ramban, was written before the burning happened, meaning it's between the cherem and uh, the fire. Okay. Uh, now, so in the next text, I want to show you the Ramban saying, I can't understand what the problem is. It says, maybe this is what your problems are. And he starts listing what the potential problems of Sefer Ahmad are. So he says, number one, I heard that you guys maybe don't like uh, uh, Sefer Amada because he denies Gehenim. Okay, if you learn Hilchus Chuvah Perekes, it's all fresh. It's fresh in your mind if you're doing Perek Echad. He doesn't talk about Gehenim. There's not one mention of Gehenim in the entire Sefer This is though, you have a lot of chapters dealing with a lot of issues and punishment and all that stuff. There's no mention of Gehenim. And in fact, when he talks about punishment, he just mentions Karas being cut off, ceasing to exist. Uh, and that's it. And so maybe that's what it is. So the Rambam says, you're not read, uh, the Ramban says, he comes and defends the Rambam. He says, if you read Hilchas Tshuva really well, you'll notice that in... Uh, itself, he uses language of people who have passed away and they're being punished. So, and that's so he, do, he Rambam does not only say, oh, and the Russia is cut off. 
although that is the overarching theme. He does have a few references in Hilchas Tshuva where the person has a chelak le'olam haba and the person is judged for his sins. So what's that judgment for his sins? So it must mean it's a remez for Gehenim. Ah, you have a shaila of why he didn't elaborate on it and why he didn't say clearly. So the Ramban says the reason is because Rambam only likes to talk about the things that he has a clear comprehension of and the sources are very, very clear about it. And uh, so that's what he's going to talk about. But the Indian of, uh, of, 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 um, of Gehenim is shtikol uh, behelem. It's, we don't have a hechrech and a raya gemura for its existence. And so therefore he chose not to talk about it. But he showed you that he believes in it. And so therefore it's enough, so let go of him. Uh, then he says, another rumor I heard is, Maybe your problem is in his statement where he talks about that God has no physical form. So let's talk about this for a minute. In Hilchus Yisrael the Rambam dedicates almost the entire first chapter of Hilchus Yisrael to say no physicality, no corporeality whatsoever within God. Ravid leaves him alone there. Ravid doesn't have a problem with that. But then when he comes to Hilchus Tshuva, I don't remember what parak, parak gimel, parak dalit, something like that. The Rambam says that if you believe that God has any corporeal form, then you're a min. I think he says it's a min. That's what the Ravid says. Whoa, whoa, hold on, hold on. Harbeg doilim men, who many people greater than the Rambam believe that there's some element of physicality uh, to God. And so I think, is, is that what your issue is? That you don't like that the Rambam wrote that? The, here the Rambam says, I'm going to side with the Rambam. Ramban says, I'm going to side with the Ramah. He's right. If that's your problem, he's right. And he says, all the going to matter, this is the traditional Jewish belief. This is what we really believe, that you cannot, he doesn't call it minus, but he calls it hevel. Ramban says, if you believe that there's any sort of physicality to God, that's hevel. And then he does something really wise. He brings a raya from one of theirs, from the Rekeach. The Rekeach lived in Worms. And he wrote a sefer that it's called Shar Yesoid Hayichud Va'amuna. So the Ramban basically knows he can't bring a raya from another Sephardi. It's not going to help. So he brings a raya from Rabbi Lazar of Worms, who everyone there loved in France and in Germany. He was uh, he had already passed away by then. And he brings from his sefer very clearly where it says, Although there's physical language about God, it's only a metaphor to bring it to you for you to be able to understand. And so therefore, that shouldn't be uh, an issue. And, that, and those pretty much the only two things that the Ramban brings up where he says what's your problem with, with Sefer Amoira excuse me with Sefer Amada is the Gehenim issue and the physicality issue physicality he says Rambam is right Gehenim issue he says don't worry he put in a remes <coughs> for Gehenim leave him alone I don't understand why he had a problem with uh, Sefer Amada Rabbi Ram ben Arambam we quoted him before he has a letter on this subject and he brings another thing that he heard that the Rabbanit Tsarfas were upset about, and that is the Indian of Olam Haba. That my father says that which means that Olam Haba is souls without bodies. And we know the Ravid disagreed. The Ravid said this is wrong. Ramban himself would, I think later, I don't, I don't think he wrote his work by then yet, Sharagmul, but the Ramban himself strongly disagreed and said Olam Haba is a physical type of existence. Rabbi Avram is saying that he heard that the rabbis in France are upset about uh, this particular issue. Rabbi Avram goes on to defend his father's view. He thinks his father's view is right. There is Moshiach, there is Tchiyas Amazim, but that's not the ideal form of existence. The ideal form of existence is Elam Haba, which is souls without bodies. Okay, so these are pretty much, that's all, that's all we have. If you want to know what was the problem, you could guess on your own. We could guess on our own. 
But if you want to look from evidence of that generation where they pointed to problems and say for Amada, that's what we have. The Gehenna issue, the corporeality of God, and uh, the physical nature or not nature uh, of the Olam Haba. Okay. Now, the Ramban decides he wants to try to reach a reconciliation. Again, it seems from his letters this is before any reporting of fires because there is no mention of any sort of burning of books in the Ramban's letters, at least not that I noticed. So what does he do? He says as follows. The first thing is he tries to tell the Rabbanim in France, you don't understand your situation, <laughs> our situation. <laughs> do you think for you, dear Go'ine HaTalmud, the Rambam worked hard to create his Mer Nebuchim for you guys? He didn't work to create it for you guys. You don't have the challenges that our Jews here have in Spain and the Jews are having in the Middle East, any Jew living in the Islamic world and in Spain had. What was that challenge? The challenge was major exposure to Greek philosophy, which the Ramban details. And nimshechu is People are following the Greek ways. And so the Rambam needed to do something. You need to say something. You need some sort of defense. How do you help these Jews retain their Yiddishkeit and their Judaism if, again, to be woke means more nevuchim? So what do you, what, excuse me, to, it means Greek philosophy. How do you give that person a, a, a pathway to Yiddishkeit? So this is what Rambam, uh, Rambam's model was. It's a magenhu lechitzai b'nei yavon. It is a shield against the arrows that are coming from the Greeks. And the people who are drowning in tita yavin, he's using uh, that language from Tehillim, uh, using as a pun, yavin there just means the, 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 the deep mud that a person's getting stuck in. He's using it as a pun for yavon in terms of Greek philosophy. And so therefore the Ramban goes on to say, you have to rescind your ban, take your cherem away. Uh, here's what we could do. Here's the middle ground. We could make a ban on um, making uh, uh, what he calls is uh, issuing explanations to the Moira. In other words, there is a problem of when you take the Myrna Vukhim, it says what it says. Then there's the expansion. And so therefore say, where are new areas this applies and whatever. So we could ban that. And on also doing Pearsum. Pearsum means like a mass marketing campaigns to get people to come learn Myrna Vukhim. That type of thing you could put maybe a ban against that. But to tell people, Jews in Spain who need this and who are doing this. And he says, by the way, they're not going to listen to you even if you don't listen to the ban. They're going to continue. You got to listen to the ban. Take it away. Let them learn their Myrna Vukhim. I disagree with many things in Marnavuchim, and indeed Ramban in his Pirush Torah attacks the Rambam numerous times, but he's not willing to cross the line that we should go to a ban. He wants to leave it without a ban, and this is a letter that the Rambam writes to uh, uh, the, uh, the Chachmei uh, Tsarfas. Okay, good. What eventually happens? The ban is taka lifted. The ban is taka lifted. And so now, let's go back to the beginning. Beginning, we heard all these voices about the story. But there's a key voice we didn't get to hear yet. And that's the voice of Reb Shloyma. And I mentioned before that he's mentioned uh, very respectfully by his contemporaries, the Ramban and others. And uh, we have one document from Reb Shloyma. He wrote a letter into Spain that was uh, preserved. Let's read what he says about this. It's going to become very clear this letter is before any fire happened. There is no mention of any burning. But it's after the rabbis in France made a cherem. Let's see why he did what he did and what he did from his uh, letter. About the fighting that's going on in our community here in Montpellier. Let me tell you, we have newcomers here. 
la rois hakabalos who are eradicating our tradition la poich la moshul la hevel they're turning it into a moshul maisebreishis in other words they're taking the whole story of creation they're saying it's a moshul we saw that before and told us kain vehevel on the story of kain vehevel the story of the people who live very long right also it's all a moshul uvish arksuvak suvim b'tar and they're doing the same thing. We also heard from a translator, it's unknown who he's referring to here, one of the translators who revealed everything that Rambam concealed. In other words, here's another critique in this whole process was Rambam wrote it in Arabic. Who gave you a right to translate into Hebrew? First of all, in your translation, maybe you're changing something. And number two, you're bringing mass exposure. But in addition to that, he says, we heard this person say, every story in the Torah is a mashal. And every mitzvah is just on hug, it's just behaviors. In other words, you don't have to take a mitzvah seriously. When I heard this, I became really, really upset. I had many debates with them. And then what happened is, I didn't start up. They started up. They slandered. And they said that I slandered the Rambam, Rabbeinu Moshe. <clears throat> and this never happened. I never said anything against the Rambam. Uh, uh, I never did any ad hominem attacks on, against him. Uh, and then when I saw I saw that I'm in trouble. I'm like, okay, let me bring the rabbis from France here. In other words, he was looking for support. Why? What did I want from them? To comfort us, and to speak to us, and to strengthen us. They're going to tell us, Send a memo. What is the true Judaism look like? What is Torah really? What are mitzvahs? That's what I was looking for, that type of support. When my letter reached them, they also got shaken up. And at this time, somehow they get the Murnavuchim. And they get very upset. And so they girded themselves to take their swords out and to take their curses out. In other words, they're the ones who issued the cherem, which we already know. Everyone's shocked by this cherem. I'm also surprised. I also don't think it's warranted. I also didn't ask for it. I'm not interested in it. But this is something that they do. And then he goes on the next paragraph, paragraph to swear. I never spoke foul on the Rambam. And he says, we quote him all the time. In fact, we try to defend the Rambam's words. And then he says, it's very possible that what's going on is that you have someone going on in your community, it seems he's referring to the Radak, who I mentioned before, was in Spain at this time, trying to get support against Reb Shloyma. He said, it's, you should be aware that there's a letter going around that is presumably my writing to the rabbis in France. I'm letting you know it's forged. I didn't write that. Because that letter says I'm asking for a cheyrem, and that letter has me attacking the Rambam. I never wrote that. Someone forged that, and uh, and so please look into that before you reach any conclusion. Uh, and he and he signs his letter Shlaima Avram, and it's also signed by Reb David, who's the other name, one of the names of his two students that we saw earlier. So what do we see here? We see Reb, Reb Shlaima basically is is corroborating what we saw before. There was a sociological problem. And it was linked to the Rambam's writing, specifically, mostly to the Maran of Uchim. And this bothered him. And he decided he was going to do something about it. And he did turn to the rabbis in France. But that's, the, that's it. He wasn't interested in the Cheyrem. And the Cheyrem came, 
presumably he wanted it off. So he must have been happy with Ramban's approach. Ramban's approach would seem to, Ramban also was unhappy about the Mar Nebuchadnezzar. <coughs> Ramban also wanted to limit the Mar Nebuchadnezzar. So the Ramban's approach seems very close to Reb Shlomo's approach. Now, if this is the case, now you have to go back to Radak's testimony. And Radak says that Reb Shloima went to the Christians and said, burn the book. Now, it's important to know, Radak wasn't there. He wasn't in Montpellier. Everything he's hearing, he's hearing from other sources. He's in Spain during this whole Parsha. And we know that Reb Shloima is saying he has enemies. He has enemies in Montpellier who are forging documents in his name. So in other words, those people who are forging documents are also forging narratives and stories. So we have a possibility over here that this story that Radak had, and in good faith, perhaps shared it with others, but it's very possible that it's not uh, accurate. Think about it. If Reb Shloyma, if we're going to take him here at his word, and I, why not? Why wouldn't you take someone who all the scholars of their generation said was a, an upright man and a great Talmud Chacham and a tzaddik, why shouldn't we take him at his word here? So if you're going to take him at his word, he's saying, I didn't even ask for a French ban. If you didn't ask for a French ban, you think he's going to go to the Christians and say, come take our books from us, come make an investigation? That's a hundred times worse. Messira was the worst crime, as I said, a person could do then. And even though he, did, he was on a religious war, and sometimes you say people go on a religious war, they end up doing things that maybe they themselves would regret later. But again, if he himself didn't uh, uh, ask for a cheyrem, then I, it's very hard for me to believe that he himself asked for the books to be burnt. And there's more supporting evidence for this. The Me'iri was a big admirer of the Rambam. The Me'iri lived after this. He was a big admirer of the Rambam, lived in Provence. And the Me'iri quotes this Reb Shloyma and calls him Doyle HaChachamim. Do you really think that he would call him Doyle HaChachamim if he went to the Franciscans and the Dominicans and said, come take our books? Very hard to believe that. And in fact, there are other accounts that are written say, saying that Jews went and said, take these books from us and do not specify their names. And do not specify the names. And in fact, what, the defender, Rabbi Yosef ben Tadras Halevi, who was a defender who we saw before, he criticizes Reb Shloyme. And he says Reb Shloyme's approach was wrong because you need to talk delicate, you need to talk soft, you need to talk inspiring words. You can't uh, criticize harshly if you want to inspire people to do tshuva. And so in that regard, he uh, criticizes Reb Shloyme. But then when he talks about the burning, his lashon is, He's very careful in his language to say, things happen, one thing led to the next, and they burnt it. He does not take the burning and put it in the zone of Reb Shloyme. So in other words, yes, is it possible that Reb Shloyme did it? It's possible. But there's also another possibility. The other possibility is that anytime you have a machloikis, anytime you have a dispute, there are always multiple layers to it. And there are, there's always the philosophically minded people or the the people who have like the, the dispute on a, like an academic level, and then you, there's always, when something spills into the street, there's always the side of it where it's just completely personal, it's just completely I need a win, and it's not about ideology at all. It's just, oh, I'm with you, whatever you do is right, whatever the other person is doing, very, very black and white type of thing. We see this all the time when we see, uh, when we see in the world of politics, for example. So it's not upkefrek uh, that you had other Jews uh, who did go over to the Christian side and, uh, and, and did uh, do this. That itself is not clear. We don't know. It is also possible, by the way, that no Jew went over to the Christian side. Is it possible that the Christian uh, community hears that something's going on, they say, let's take a look at this, and then they, on their own, decide to act? That's also possible. There is no clear evidence. There is no voice in Montpellier who's, telling, who's neutral, who's taught. Most of the voices aren't neutral. 
but almost all the voices aren't even there. Aren't even there talking about the, this uh, this uh, fire. So it's really uh, uh, it's something that's actually shrouded in mystery. I said before we don't know how many copies were burnt. We don't know where this fire took place, presumably in Montpellier. Um, but beyond that, we don't really have information. And now I'm saying we don't really know how it happened. is the words that Rabbi Yosef ben Tadras Halevi, who defends Rabbi Shloima, says. You have to assume Rabbi Shloima would say that about himself uh, as well. There's another factor to consider in all this. And that is there are multiple accounts that say that after they burnt the Rambam, the Christians did an investigation further and found out that there was false testimony. What did they do in Provence if you gave false testimony in the 1230s? One of the punishments that was very common was to remove the tongue of the person who issued this false testimony. And it's, they say that that's what happened here. Now guess what? Rabbi Yoyna, Rabbi Yoyna, who's one of the three who's mentioned in this whole story, a few years later became the Rav and the Darshan in, in Toledo, in, 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 in Spain. So presumably he had his tongue. It's very hard to be a Darshan when you don't have your tongue. Um, it's a very hard thing to imagine that these very well-known figures, Reb Shloyma, Reb Yoyna, uh, we, we pretty much know they had their tongues. And so this is another factor to consider in this, uh, in, in this uh, discussion, that indeed it wasn't Reb Shloyma who's telling. But the main thing is his voice. You see his voice here saying, I wasn't for the Khairim, and if he isn't for the Khairim, he definitely isn't for uh, the book burning. Okay, now what's the end of the story? The end of the story is that there is a book burning of the Gemara a few years later. There were those who were very pro-Rambam who decided to connect the two. Said, so you know why the Gemara was burnt in Paris on Erech 1242? We gave a share on it last summer. You know why that happened? Oh, because you burnt the Rambam. Hashem was upset and this is the punishment. Okay, fine. That happens sometimes when people see they give a theological explanation. Uh, on a very historical level, there's no connection between these, uh, between these two, uh, between these two uh, incidents. Um, but then, what happens after that is that the dispute moves right back to where it was before. And that is not on the streets, it's not cheyrem, it's not fires, but it is a dispute that in some ways remains with us till this day. And that is the role of Chachmas Chisenius, the role of secular knowledge, navigating that together with Judaism. Uh, what role does Mar Nevuchim play in Jewish life? What role should it play in Jewish life? How to deal with the controversial passages that are there? That's an ongoing discussion uh, that we need to have and that maybe we will uh, follow up in a separate uh, shir. Now let's reach the time for the conclusion. So reach the conclusion, We're running a little late. So I'll we'll summarize with a few points, about four or five points and we'll conclude. Number one, there's a letter from the Alter Rebbe. The Alter Rebbe wrote a letter sometime in the 1790s where there was a book Presumably Tzavasar Ivash, the Torahs of the Baal Shantiv, and it was burnt in Vilna. And the Hasidim in Vilna were very shocked and horrified by this. And they wrote to the Alter Rebbe that they want to take Nekoma. And the Alter Rebbe wanted to calm them down and said, don't worry about it, it's going to be fine. And they're like, what do you mean it's going to be fine? They burnt our book! So they're not, the Alter Rebbe wrote back at the end of this long letter. And he said, don't worry, look what happened with the Rambam. The people, and he stresses it like this. He gives a summary of the story. And you could actually do a lot of ha'aris uh, on the specifics that the Alter Rebbe talks about, which we're not going to do. I'll focus on the main theme of the letter. The main theme of the letter is who had an issue with the Rambam as a person? Which, the truth is, we didn't really see that today. We didn't see anyone having an issue with the Rambam as a person. But it, the truth, it, it did exist. In previous decades, before the 1230s, there were people who mamish attacked the Rambam and, and weren't even done him, Lakafskos. 
and, and, and that's presumably who the Al Rebbe is talking about. They say, why, didn't, why did they attack him as a person? Because they didn't know him. They didn't know him, they thought he was a kaifer, and they didn't understand things properly. And what happened at the end? The truth came out, and look, the Rambam is accepted by everyone. Same thing he says is going to happen with us. It's the people who don't know us who hate us. As people learn more about us, they won't hate us anymore, and then you'll see Hasidus is going to take over the world. So that's the statement that the Alter Rebbe said, leaning into this uh, story uh, and, um, and taking encouragement from it. So really, you could say that right, right there is an important lesson. This whole st story is an important <laughs> lesson. When the going is tough, to remember, it was pretty tough for the Rambam uh, throughout it, and yet he came out with uh, shining colors. Uh, in some ways, if you're, if you're not controversial, uh, it also means maybe you're not doing, uh, maybe you're not doing enough. Maybe you're not doing uh, enough good. So that's just a way to look at controversy and look at a difficult situation to remember that you can come out on the strong uh, side. That's number one. Number two, personally, I very much connected with the whole way of, on uh, the one hand, strongly criticizing at least sections of the Rambam and criticizing maybe the fact that he wrote it. Uh, he shouldn't have written it, and if yeah, he shouldn't have included certain passages, but at the same time saying, but you know something? He's a tzaddik, he's a wonderful man. Uh, we need that in our lives, because the natural tendency is when you see someone making an error, is to then just turn them into one big rotten ball and to say that person is terrible and has no redeeming qualities, and then that's it. It is a gift to be able to say, um, you're a good person, you're a special person, I cherish you and I love you, and yet I strongly and vehemently disagree with something that you did. That's a talent that we need to work on as a community to develop. So that's another important lesson to take from uh, here. Obviously, the chshivas of learning Mishnah Torah, to come, the words that the Rambam, the Ramban used over here, is how dare you criticize the Yad, how dare you criticize the Mishnah Torah. Kulam avulai v'chazubai upaschai v'einzaiger. Everyone desires it, looks at it, opens it, and can't close it. So Pashat, that was then the Ramban saying. That's obviously very important for us today as we move on into uh, the next Sefer of the Rambam. And finally, there's one more point to come back to the Nakud of Gimel Tamos. Sorry, I'm going a little over, but it's the year before Gimel Tamos, so I'm going to give myself permission. Mentioned earlier, Shemesh Begimel Daim, the first critique that we saw against Mer Nevuchim was his words about Shemesh Begimel Daim. So what's interesting is the following. It happened Gimel Tamos. Gimel Tamos is the day the Friedrich Rebbe was partially released from prison in 1927. The Rebbe asked a question about the Friedrich Rebbe's release. If a miracle happened that the Friedrich Rebbe is released, why not straight to Yud Beis Tammuz? Why is it that you go to Gimel Tammuz? It's a process. Oh, first, okay, no death sentence, but we're going to send you to Golos. And then, 10 days later, oh, okay, by the way, we're going to free you. Why that process if there's a miracle? And really, you could ask the same question about the story of Shemesh B'Gimel Doim. God's making a miracle? Make a miracle that the Amorim disappear. Whoosh! No! The Jews are still going to have to fight their battle and they're going to still have to get, take their swords out and they're gonna still going to have to sweat and tears and blood and all of that, but I'm going to make this miracle? What's going on over here? And there's a third similar question in Parsha's Koirach, this week's Parsha, about the stick. Because when Hashem makes the miracle that the stick buds to prove that Aaron is the true Koyin, it doesn't just come out with fruits which gave him. There's a, a flower, a leaf, and a bud, and I think through the whole process it's just expedited. But why go through the whole process? So you have the same theme in all three stories. What's the theme in all three stories? That as much as there's going to be a miracle, we're not negating Teva. It's something the Rambam cared a lot about, incidentally. Teva matters. 
and we shouldn't do away with it. And you see that even in these miracles, no, you're going to have to fight the war. I'll hold the sun out, but you're going to have to fight the war. I'll expedite the process, but the, the way this almond grows, it's going to go, it's going to go, it's going to take its natural course. And likewise, a ge'ula for a Rebbe is going to come about in such a way where first they're going to send him to exile, then they realize, you know something, we can might as well free him, because teva matters. And a miracle has to be compatible with teva, because that's the Jew's mission in life, is to bring the miracle, spirituality, alikus, and godliness, into a world of teva, not to run away from teva, we're not trying to run away from nature. And Avoida, what does that mean? The Rebbe says in the Sikha, this is a Sikha of Gimel Tamos, Shin, Nun Aleph, what's that in Avoida? That we want to hold on to our Teva. You want to hold on to your koich, your koiches, your talents, your chushim, your nature. We don't want to run away from that. We want to hold that. But at the same time, you want to take the deep, deep miracle within you, the miracle within you is a soul, the neshama, the mesiris nefesh that a Jew has. We want to take the miracle within you and we want that to influence your individuality. You're not running away from it. It's easy to run away from it and say, I'm mesiris nefesh, I'm a muna, let me run away from my characteristics of a human being. No. The story of Shemesh Begiven Doim, the story of Kairach, the story of Gimel Tamos, all teach us the idea that we need to take the highest and connect it with the lowest. Taking the deepest powers of the neshama and linking it with our characteristics in Teva. Okay, now let's make the Siyum Rambam brief, uh, quickly.